Today on the Alt Goes Mainstream podcast, we have the second podcast in a special three-part series with some of the titans in the alts world. We're partnering with Kaya, the leading global professional body in alternative investment credentialing programs, for a very special episode that dovetails with the release of their latest report on renewed professionalism and creating client-centered outcomes for the portfolio of the future. We're lucky enough to have Michelle Seitz, a stalwart and veteran of the asset management industry, who is the founder and CEO of Made Invest Partners private investment firm, and was most recently the CEO of Russell Investments, one of the largest advisors in the world with $300 billion in AUM and $1.2 trillion in assets under advisement. During Michelle's five-year tenure as chair and CEO, she helped modernize offerings by adding leading-edge capabilities around private markets and ESG investing and elevated diversity and inclusion programs. Michelle's illustrious career includes a number of accolades such as Barron's Most Influential Women in U.S. Finance and American Banker's Most Powerful Women in Finance Awards. Prior to joining Russell, Michelle spent 22 years at William Blair, where she was CEO of William Blair Investment Management and was on William Blair's Corporate Board of Directors for 16 years. She took the helm as CEO at the ripe old age of 35, where she led William Blair's institutional, mutual fund, and private wealth management businesses. She drove five-fold growth at WBIM and transformed an $11 billion business into a $74 billion global asset management firm and a five-time winner of the best places to work in money management. Michelle and I had a fascinating conversation, starting with how her career started with the crash of 1987 and what it meant for how she viewed the asset management world and how to focus on the client's outcomes, the importance of portfolio construction, how and why alts may not fit into every investor's portfolio depending on the risk, portfolio construction, fee questions, and the importance of understanding risk. Thanks, Michelle, for coming on the Alco's Mainstream podcast to share your wisdom. It was a pleasure having you on the show. We're going mainstream. Michelle, welcome to the Alco's Mainstream podcast. Michael, thank you for having me. Oh, p- pleasure to have you on. You've had an illustrious career as a CEO, an investor across various asset classes and channels of the investment management industry. And now you've started your own firm, Made Invest, to help solve societal problems through investing. So ton of fascinating things to cover, but would love to just start with your background. How did you get here and what your biggest learnings have been? Oh, sure. Well, I'll try to keep that succinct and you tell me where you'd like to go. But how did I get here? I grew up in a small town in Indiana and I ended up visiting the trading floor of what's now the CBO, but it was back then, I think it was the CBOT on an advanced chemistry class to the Museum of Science and Industry. And we took a detour, thank goodness, for my family and my career to the Chicago Board of Trade, and I loved it. I loved the energy. I loved that there was a career where you could learn for a living. You got to talk with the most dynamic, impactful people on earth within government, business. I got to read newspapers. My kids, when I'd wake up on an early weekend morning, I'd have a pile of newspapers back in the day. And they'd say, what are you doing? I said, I'm working. They're like, you're just reading. What do you mean you're working? (laughs) So it's been a phenomenal career, but I was tapped 
early on, back in 1987, to be a portfolio manager. It was the summer of 87, right before the crash. And so I think the important part about my career is that I understood very quickly. It was a lot of fun for about three months. And then the October crash of 87 happened and it got real, really fast. And I know you're doing this podcast with Kaya and a paper that they recently did about the fiduciary responsibility of the industry. And I I couldn't be more grateful that I started my investing career 35, 36 years ago with a crash because that made this role really real, (laughs) really fast. When you're managing people's life savings and they're calling you on the phone explaining how they're going to have to revamp their lives, given what's just happened in a day, it no longer is a game. It's no longer placing bets and it's no longer about alpha. It's as much about the outcomes that you're trying to deliver. I was an investor through 2007, but I became a CEO in 2001 during another downturn and right after the tech bubble in 99. And so it's been a great journey. I've been incredibly privileged to see it from many different seats, starting out at NCNB, which is now Bank America, so big corporate bank, to a startup RIA in Chicago, to a private partnership with William Blair, to a private equity firms that are investors in an iconic 86-year-old firm and Russell Investments. And so it's been a privilege, but I've really enjoyed the ride both in the C-suite and as a CEO as well as an investor. It's a fascinating background and you've worked at different companies with different backers. Given that this podcast covers private markets, what would you say were some of the pros and cons of the different types of investor relationships or ownership types of the firms that you mentioned. You mentioned Russell is backed by private equity. You mentioned Blair is a private partnership. You now are starting your own firm. What are some of the things you've learned from those various investor operator relationships? No, that's that's a great question. So I would say for my own firm, Made Invest Partners, hopefully this is the purest expression of my life's work, (laughs) both in terms of what I want to do and the fact that I only answer to myself at the moment, but also the people that I end up working with. What I've learned along the way is the touchstone always, your true north always as a leader, as an investor, is what problem are you trying to solve And what does the client need, the end client? When you think about that, it almost always cuts through whatever the ownership structure is and the relationship with the ownership structure, because they're all very different. And one's not necessarily better than the other. All companies can thrive with public ownership, private ownership, VC backing, private equity backing, 100% private employee owned. Blair was 100% active employee owned. And there are pros and cons to each one. But I would say having situational awareness of how to get things done in different kinds of environments and what kind of leader you need to show up as in order to achieve the outcomes you need for those clients is very different for those different environments. I think I have access to several different leadership skills and types, but situational awareness is incredibly important because the way you build your business in a 100% active employee-owned firm 
And when you invest for decades versus investing for quarterly reports, but still with an eye toward the long term, it's just very different. Leaders need to manage differently. But as long as everyone, no matter the structure, keeps an eye toward what you're trying to achieve and what is best for the clients, that almost always sets you free from whatever the limitations are of each operating structure. And do you think that the type of investor you have has an impact on how you handle what your true north is? Because investors have their own needs that they need to balance. And how do you think about balancing that with the true north that you have for your clients, which may not always be aligned with what the investor has to do for their own clients in the back end because they have LPs? Right. I think you're asking this question from the standpoint of a firm like Russell, who managed money for the biggest asset owners in the world, most sophisticated. But ultimately, at the end of that line was a police officer, a firefighter, a teacher, a boilermaker, whomever it may be. I think the industry has gotten lost because we focus so much on the componentry and optimizing for our own business models that we forgot what the end clients really need. And I'll just use one small example. The end clients don't need second-to-second liquidity in all of their investments. They just don't. But we built the mutual fund industry, which is a great creation. I don't know how long it will last, but it's a great creation and gave people diversified access. But did we really need to set the entire infrastructure up for minute-by-minute access to liquidity. No, almost no one needs access minute by minute to their investment savings. I think that you do manage your businesses differently for what you are being hired to do and what your end client is. So if it is a large sovereign wealth fund, the interaction with that sovereign wealth fund is quite different than the interaction with an advisor who's catering to a high net worth client base or an advisor who's catering to a retail client base. And I think as we get into this alts conversation, that is the challenge of trying to make alts mainstream. I don't think it is mainstream, but we're trying to make it more mainstream and more accessible. And I think how we deliver it, how we use it responsibly, how we price it, the vehicles we deliver it in, those are all very complex business issues that change very dramatically based upon where you are in the ecosystem of trying to deliver it. That's a big topic that I want to get to because I think that alts is something that is sold, not bought. And to do that, you have to, one, you have to educate. Two, you have to distribute these products properly. And three, to your point, they have to be distributed to different clients in a way that meets the end client's needs, whether it's a wealth manager with an end client, whether it's a pension fund with an end real money client, like a police officer or a boilermaker, like you say. So how do you think about how product manufacturers, you worked at, you've worked at various firms across the industry, you've worked at one with a consultative DNA, with Russell and ran that firm. How do you think about the creation of products and the distribution of products in the alt space, keeping in mind what we were just talking about with thinking about the end client's goals and objectives? Let me start it with saying that I believe the componentry, i.e. products, are still important components 
of delivering outcomes to end investors. However, we have, as an industry, over-indexed R&D, labor, time, money on componentry versus the delivery of an outcome, portfolio construction, risk allocation, understanding all of the other needs and facets that the end clients have and need. And so I believe that we need to transition the industry from products to services, from the institutions to institutions, to a more comprehensive understanding of what we, within our ecosystem of trading products with each other and putting each other on platforms and partnering and all the rest of it, we can't lose sight of how this gets consumed, at what price point, how simply, and is it appropriate? They can access it, should they access it, should they access it in this manner, at this price point, and in complementary combination with all of the other investments that they may have within their total portfolio. I just really believe that as we create additional products to deliver into the wealth market, I want the industry and hope that we all are very cognizant of how we build that into a total portfolio and give our clients and have the platforms and the advisors work with managers that are providing the componentry, whether it's VC, real estate, infrastructure, private equity, mezzanine, so many ways to access alts that I think it does a disservice to even call it alternatives because they're so vastly different from each other. Before we get to the access piece, I want to touch on how you think the industry can improve and continue to figure out how to offer the right products and figure out the right portfolio construction for the end client. What's it going to take so that one, those clients get the right products and two, pay the appropriate level of fees for those products? I think the people closest to the clients will be in the best position to ask those questions and tell all of the parts of the investment ecosystem what they need and how they need it delivered. Our focus at Russell was to educate those advisors, and I know you've had lots of phenomenal people on this podcast talking and doing incredible things, especially on the platform and fintech space, on the education front, making sure that both advisors as well as the end clients know what questions to ask. I've often said you can't educate people out of a crisis. And now with a more difficult environment, both from a market and economic standpoint, we do have a financial resilience and security crisis. Most people are not going to be able to retire in the lifestyles that they've grown accustomed. Let's table that one for a second. But we can't rely on financial literacy and education of advisors and their end clients to understand. I mean, you've been in this I've been in this for 36 years. I'm still learning. I'm still asking a ton of questions. I called Mario every week, who's the CEO of Hamilton Lane. I went through the Hamilton Lane Educational School, and Russell had 20 years of experience. So it's not as though I was a novice by any stretch. I was highly sophisticated. But the learning curve to make sure that you know how to use these sophisticated 
tools and that you're gaining access to the best managers and that you have a process. Our selection rate was 3% of the managers that we interviewed. It's an area ripe with landmines and an area that is tremendously beneficial if you get it right. But I think that making sure first and foremost that we understand what we're trying to solve for in these client portfolios and do alternatives, broadly speaking, have a place. And is it through primaries? Is it through co-investments? Is it through secondaries and diversifying by vintage? Is it infrastructure and real estate versus VC and private equity? And I think we've dumbed this conversation down to conversation about alts and gaining access to alts and a great money manager that we've lost sight of responsibly doing it in a diversified way. I think it's, again, the advisors who are going to be at the forefront of that because they're closest to the clients. And the clients, I don't expect we're going to have them educated so that they know. I just think that that's too much burden. I mean, thank goodness I don't need to know how to code to use my iPad. So we just need to know when to stop the educational process and take on that fiduciary role. It's an interesting point, though, that you bring up, and this does relate to actually the story that you shared earlier about that every weekend you'd read the newspaper, and that was that was learning, that was work for you. Dissemination of information has changed. The extreme example of that, which we don't need to get into, is Wall Street bets and kind of changing the course of the market on the public equity side in ways that may not have been good. How do you think the change in the dissemination of information and the access to information for all sorts of investors, even that end client who may not be an investment professional but can then talk to their wealth manager or is using technology, whether they're using a company in the private markets, they're using Stripe at checkout, and then they may know what Stripe is and they may want to invest in Stripe, and that's access to private markets. How do you think that changes the equation when it comes to and investors understanding or being educated on alternative investments writ large? And then how can the intermediaries or those who are the fiduciaries bridge the gap and help them figure out where and how they should put in privates into their portfolios? I've got five children. They're aged 16 to 23. And when I had most of them home during COVID and I was working from home, the conversation turned quickly to Dogecoin and crypto and the digital ledger and blockchain and Stripe and all the rest of it. So we have a whole generation that are digital natives. And one of my sons, Joseph, so if he's listening, I'm calling him out, but he said, I think this is maybe the first generation where my generation may know more about digital investing and in kind of the new world than your generation. And so we had a debate about that. But I do think there's an enormous benefit in the technological advances and how um, immediate the access to data is. I do differentiate data from insight, however, and we are bombarded with enormous noise Much of that data, though, has been used to commoditize access to beta, which I think is phenomenal, absolutely phenomenal. So if we build portfolios where we have even synthetic beta or beta personalized at scale for tax efficiency in the form of direct indexing, and then you do 
secondaries, co-investments, direct indexing, or uh, providers build products within target date funds, or I mean, it all kinds of ways that we can give access to illiquidity premium and build balanced, diversified portfolios so that individuals can gain access. And then you've built a real powerful dynamic portfolio that's priced efficiently. And I don't mean to not say that there aren't still skilled alpha-driven active managers. There absolutely are, and I believe in active management. But you've got to use all of these tools. And I think it's fantastic that innovation has occurred. It's a tremendous headwind to the active management industry, as you referenced earlier, but it's good for the client. So back to my touchstone. If it's good for the client, don't fight it. Embrace it. Figure out how you add value. And that's where there's a lot of innovation within the industry and many of the people that you've had on this podcast, which makes me very excited about how we can help move the needle on what is our societal purpose, which is to provide financial security for people. And you've got to do that after tax, after fee, after inflation. And those are all very important things to have access to alts but also have access to a a lot of other innovations that have occurred in the industry. How do you think the asset management industry should react to Joseph's comment about the fact that the younger generation may feel that they know certain aspects of the technology world, private investing world, certain alternative assets? I'd certainly bucket passion assets where we had some of those platforms or people representing asset owners in that area on the podcast. What advice would you give to the asset management world on how to think about that, given that they may be dealing with a next generation client? Number one, I think it's great. It's also great that they didn't have a lot of money that they were putting into these things, so that they lost them because it's fun until it's not. And then you realize it's pretty serious. Now, having said that, the benefit of them all being digitally native is that they do require, we are not a consumer facing industry. There are some in our industry that are quite skilled at it, but as a whole, we are not a consumer facing industry that we've made it as easy as Apple has, or has many other tech companies have and consumer companies to give and take information in real time with the end consumer. My dream is that we have an app that tells people in real time what their financial net worth is, how markets are impacting their portfolio. Not that they can turn around and day trade on Robinhood or something, but so that they can course correct. If you're 25 years old and you realize you need to save an extra 20 bucks a week in order to hit whatever goals you have so that when you're 35, you can take a gap year and go learn a different language and live somewhere else so that then you can keep working until you're 85 years old because that's what life's going to be because they're going to live to be 110. So if we could put more financial understanding packaged in a way that they can manage their wealth spans as well as we have our aura rings and our watches and everything else to help manage our health spans so that we can actually not fear going broke before we die, which most people do. I think that would be a thing of magic. And I think it's that generation that will push our industry to deliver that type of comprehensive data packaged with insight. So it's not just about what's the lowest fee product, because that's good. That's really good. Or what's the best performing product? That's good. That's really good. 
but how, how do I make all of this dynamically work for all the assets that I have, all the income I have coming in, and how much I spend to make sure that I'm financially secure, financially resilient throughout my life for different life events. And we're woefully, woefully behind in delivering that to that generation, which I think will demand it, let alone for all the people that would have benefited from having it. We're closer. We're doing lots of cool things. We're closer and different people are solving in different verticals, but it will be one of my thought leadership points and hopefully in companies that I find to invest in that we connect those dots more quickly so that we can deliver more end value and more families are financially secure. You use the word demand in that answer. Do you think that younger investors will be more self-directed in nature? And if so, looking back at your 35-year career in the asset management industry and the arc of change, how does a more self-directed investor who's grown up investing on retail brokerage platforms themselves and wanting to do things themselves, how does that change the asset management industry, both in the way that firms interact with clients and then also serve clients? Well, I think it's not an either or. It's an and. While they may have knowledge and insight into their companies, their industries, and they they may become skilled investors with a specialty, that should be in tandem with a financial planner, an advisor, a wealth advisor, a skilled representative from a discount broker. However they get more comprehensive advice, we shouldn't fear that access and that curiosity and that knowledge. We should channel it, and it should be an and. I think all of us would benefit from trying to connect the dots and trying to deliver the service in a way that meets the needs and fuels the curiosity, because the more curious they are about their financial health, the better it is. But remember, Sims, an educated consumer is our best customer or something like that. That's how I feel. I think if we can just not overload them with so much detail, we get very enthused and passionate about the complexity of what it is we do on the engineering side. How we create alpha, what we do, really doesn't need to be that complicated in order for people to consume it in a way that's beneficial to them. I think we just need to make it much more consumer friendly and that would be lots of ands rather than ors. Well, that gets to, I think, an and, which is portfolio construction and access. You've in the past talked about the fact that portfolio construction in some aspects may be more important than access. How do you think about the balance of those two things, particularly in alts as it goes downstream to a larger set of investors? On privates, there's an enormous difference, the biggest of any other asset class between top quartile managers and bottom quartile managers, which is why I chose at Russell to partner with Hamilton Lang. Because Russell does a lot of things incredibly well, but we needed to gain access to co-investments, to secondaries, and to expand really fast. So we partnered for speed, we partnered for quality, we partnered for access to complement everything that we already did. And Russell is one of the largest managers in the world. If I felt the need to do that, and we felt the need to do that with another best-in-class 
manager of open architecture. Hamilton Lane is an open architecture privates manager with 30 plus years of experience. And so I do believe that access is critically important to get the best managers in the world. And access to just privates is not good enough. Access to great skill is critical. However, with all of that, I think portfolio construction trumps it all. You pick really bad managers across the board, you're gonna get really bad outcomes. I'm trusting that most people won't do that, but I think if you also blend it with beta exposure in whatever way, or just pure in, in beta exposure, then you've probably built a pretty good portfolio. How do you solve the access piece with what you just said, which it, it, the data plays out, where top quartile managers and bottom quartile managers, the dispersion is so great, it's almost not worth investing. In certain private markets, venture is the most acute of that relative to big buyout private equity where the dispersion between first and fourth quartile managers is meaningful and more meaningful than the public market side, but small versus if you invest in a Sequoia benchmark versus a bottom quartile manager, that's going to be a massive spread in terms of returns. How do you balance the access piece with the fact that the best managers in the world in certain corners of the alt space, and I'm probably referring more to venture or some of the more specialized areas of alts or sm maybe smaller in size and scale, those managers are so much in demand and have so much capital that wants to access their product that they don't necessarily need to provide access or open up access to others at this point in time. How do you reconcile those two things? A, maybe how did you reconcile it at Russell and partnering with Hamilton Lane? And then B, how do you think about that now in your own personal context? For the combination of Russell with Hamilton Lane, we were one of the biggest and one of the most experienced investors with access that was close to world-renowned. Mostly this was offered through our institutional channel, not the advisor channel. We did partner, which is public, with Mediobanca in Italy to create co-investment structures, venture structures with our own Russell-sourced managers, as well as in partnership with Hamilton Lane. And so the Italian private banking clients had access to that. I would say that's best in class access. But what I fear is that not everything being offered will be best in class access but by definition. I mean, you're going to make mistakes. Everybody makes a mistake and you're going to get a bottom quartile manager. So that's why diversification is important. And it's why portfolio construction trumps access. So I don't think that we ought to rush to sell product and say, now you have access, check the box. I think it's incredibly dangerous. I think that it needs to be fiduciary minded, which again is why you've partnered with Kaya for this podcast. Just because you can doesn't mean you should. And I think it's incumbent upon every firm, every advisor, every product deliverer to ask the question, does this really serve the need appropriately and responsibly? And it may not. And honestly, it may be an Uzi to kill an ant. The average American makes $70,000 a year, is saving maybe $3,000 a year if they're lucky, and they're socking away 30 or 40 bucks a week. So that person does not need access to alternatives, or if they do, it can be in a much 
more responsibly diversified manner in some of these products that you're talking about. So I think we just need to be super careful not to sell things that shouldn't be sold just to check a box that say that you got access. That to me would be equivalent to you asking the question about our companies growing or looking for this channel just because they're looking for high revenue products so that they can pair up their business model. That's the furthest thing from what Kai is trying to talk about, which is the fiduciary mindset of how to introduce other asset classes that don't have as immediate liquidity and could provide some complementary uncorrelated returns in a responsible way that actually adds to the bottom line value of somebody's portfolio. So is this more about just figuring the right construct for all investors to have access. So illiquidity may be a feature, not a bug in certain respects. And 401ks may be a great place for matching the long dated nature of that structure with the long dated nature of certain alternative investments like private equity or venture. Do you think that all investors could or should have alts in their portfolio, obviously uh, respecting what you said before about it needs to be a high quality product in order for it to make sense. But assuming that's the case, is like the 401k a great place for alts to really be mainstreamed to everyone in that context? Well, we've got to jump through all kinds of ERISA laws and hurdles and fiduciary standpoint, but I go back to, so are all asset classes important to have in all investor portfolios? Absolutely not. <laughs> That's the job of our industry is to help do a risk allocation and align in a personalized way to people's individual goals. However, you can't ignore the fact that the private markets, whether it's credit, real estate, infrastructure, equity, and all of its variations, is an incredibly important part of our ecosystem. And so trying to figure out if you gain access to illiquidity premium through more passive approaches, so they just gain exposure to the asset classes, which lots of things with fractionalized shares and digital ledgers and the rest are very exciting because then people can own fractional shares of illiquid assets, perhaps in time. It's not quite there yet, but that's exciting. I just don't think one size fits all. I don't think that alts as a category is so perfect that every single person needs to have access the same that all passive. I think robo investing is great, but I also think that it falls short, that you don't have any active management in a portfolio, but is it the best default? For somebody that's trying to start out from zero and put away 40 bucks a month, sure, sure. Uh, so I think it just, it really depends upon what you're solving for, what the client's needs, and more complex is not better. You want to find the most efficient, tax efficient, fee efficient, diversified way for people to gain access so that they can deliver upon what it is they really want in life. And that's our job. The more innovation we have so that we can make that a realistic option, the better off we are. But I think if we rush to the door, we may make a lot of mistakes that'll turn people off from what is a very important, broadly speaking, asset class. You mentioned innovation. What is 
the areas of the alt space that you're most excited about in terms of opportunities for innovation going forward? Well, just given my perch, I would say delivery. I think it's delivery. I'm very excited about what may become available in the secondaries market. And with Maidenvest, I'm very excited about putting money into the hands of entrepreneurs and businesses that are doing important things that need capital and need funding. So I'm excited about the VC community in general. There are lots of interesting things happening in private credit, in infrastructure. The last investment I did in co-investments and secondaries was in infrastructure. And I'm a growth investor, and that's considered a little bit more inflation protection and yielding. I think there are pockets of innovation, which are all very exciting. But I think delivery and certainly blockchain will be a game changer. I think Bitcoin and all that buzz is taken away from the benefits of the technology. But I think fractionalized share will open up and create many other asset classes and engineered exposure. And by that, I mean synthetically trying to mimic exposures so that you get the exposure of some of these private asset classes' biggest drivers without asking for the alpha portion. I probably will get a lot of backlash and ire from that. But trying to just get the big exposures right, I think, is really important. On the point of delivery, I think the alt space has seen plenty of innovation. And when you were at Russell, you worked with the likes of a Hamilton Lane, iCapital. There's plenty of other platforms out there that are providing access and trying to shape the means of delivery in the alt space. What advice would you give these platforms when it comes to how to deliver these products well, and also how to balance that with the needs of portfolio construction? Well, the individuals, the firms that you mentioned are very sophisticated. And I already believe that they think hard about, should we deliver these access points? I think that the thing we're all working on is making sure that we provide sufficient information in real time and sales material, educational material to ensure that the advisors feel fully equipped and understanding of how to use this within their portfolio construction. So that to me is investing in technology, real-time transparent data. I believe Hamilton Lane is one of the leaders in that with their Cobalt system and many others, but being a user and an investor personally, and as a leader of various firms over time, the industry is not there. The technology is not there. The data is not there. The transparency is not there. Integration of ESG is not there. <laughs> I mean, we're just not there. And so it's a work in progress. And so knowing that, we just have to be upfront and honest with the advisors so that they know where they don't have all the data they need to look at portfolio construction. So let me just back up and say, even for the most sophisticated, biggest asset plans in the world, so client not to be named, but one of the one of our largest clients at Russell had a very sophisticated portfolio with access to all of those top tier managers you could imagine. But what they didn't have was a risk system that communicated between their public securities and their private securities in a real-time way with transparency and real-time data 
so that they could understand how that portfolio was working to the benefit of their outcomes. So they were paying a lot of money for alpha that they were muting on the public side of the equation. <laughs> they were not complementing the exposures or reducing the exposures that they were intending to have. And I use that as an example that risk systems were not built for real-time public-private exposures loading in everything else the clients owned, both at your own firm, as well as what they may own within their company 401ks, as well as what they may own in their Robinhood accounts or whatever else. And so we just haven't built the ecosystem to integrate all of that in a risk-controlled way. And that's even true in pockets with the biggest asset owners in the world. And so this is where I think we can all work together and just be more clear with each other what we have, what we don't have, so that we don't oversell something to an end client or an advisor wakes up and finds out that they damage their relationship and the net worth of their client in a way that they didn't quite appreciate or understand. And again, it's a probabilistic business, so we'll make mistakes, but you don't want to make a mistake that you weren't aware that you might be making. And you bring up a really interesting point, which I think relates to alts and the future of alts. So one is the concept of correlation and how things are tied together and the importance that data plays in helping people, advisors or end clients figure that out. And I want to touch on that point in the context of something that your colleague Mario from Hamilton Lane said, which is he, on a podcast recently, he said that he thinks at some point, 10 to 15 years from now, portfolios will be comprised of 50% public markets, 50% private markets exposure, and it won't be called alts anymore. It'll be a far cry from the 60-40 portfolio, which as we both know is 60% stocks, 40% bonds, fixed income, but all in public markets. How do you think about what you just said and the importance of data in the context of correlation? Because even if you're investing in private equity, that's still equities. It's fine that it's a liquid, but the world has so many different pressures on it, climate risk, geopolitical risk, that may not reflect the true value of an illiquid asset or it may not reflect at that point in time because it may take more time to report on that, but yet people don't necessarily then have a full purview into their portfolio. How do you think about balancing all those things, given the dissemination of information, how fast things are happening, and how to make sure to protect investors' portfolios? Well, this is what excites me the most, and it's why I'm all in in thought leadership and strategic advice and investing in, in companies to help solve many of these things. And that's because this is a point of enormous challenge for the industry, enormous need for individuals in society writ large. We have an enormous retirement gap. Most people aren't gonna be able to retire in the means with which they've grown accustomed to living. And so that's a huge problem that we are required to help solve. We can't solve it alone, meaning our industry can't solve it alone, but we have to help solve it. And I 100% agree with Mario. I believe that what we now call alternatives, we won't use that as a bucket anymore. We will talk about exposures based upon risk return characteristics and how they fit within a total portfolio. And that will be with beta exposure in direct indexing. I believe these structures that we've created in these vehicles will 
eventually go away. It might take longer than I think it should, but I think they'll all go away with technological advances. And so we will be able to provide personalization at scale. We'll be able to tap into fractional shares of illiquid assets so that we can build the efficient, tax-efficient vehicles for people. And I believe that what we now term alternatives with all kinds of various sub-asset classes that fall within that will be core to a portfolio. So 60-40, I do believe, is dead. I think we need to very quickly figure out how we deliver exposures across public and private markets so that we can efficiently deliver personalized outcomes for individuals down to the retail level. Now, we are nowhere near that mouthful, but if that's the goal that our fintech partners have, our platform partners have, our wealth management partners have, and the traditional has and the private industry has, then we will deliver such enormous answers to these needs that I get very, very excited about it. But that's a lot of disruption to some pretty deeply entrenched business models that simply doing mergers for scale is not going to solve. It may mean that we still do mergers for scale and things like that and for gaps in product needs. But it's very exciting to think about a world where we're able to truly switch the dial from componentry to delivery and portfolio construction and operational alpha, meaning less sludge in the system that takes out fees along the way and also slows down delivery of data and insight to an end client and advisor to help the end client. How does ESG fit into all of this, given that's climate risk, homelessness, et cetera, all front and center in terms of what we see every day. How does this fit into the world of investing and how you're thinking about that? Well, the world of investing is about risk management and return optimization. So if it's a climate risk, a societal risk, a governance risk, (laughs) then it's a risk. And it's an investment risk that needs to be measured. It needs to be tracked. You need to have transparency, and it needs to be incorporated into a portfolio, but also personalized to the desires and the needs of the clients. So the clients ought to drive it, but managers need to recognize and acknowledge risk where they are evident, and that includes ESG. I believe in it very much. I believe in integrating those risks, but I also believe in personalizing the integration and the construction of ESG into a personalized outcome driven by the client. How does all of this relate to what you're doing next and what you're so excited about with Made Invest? As I think I might have said at the beginning, I intend it to be the purest expression of my life's work, both in terms of using my voice, my expertise, my time, and my own resources to make sure that we are doing meaningful work and having a sustainable impact on society. So that doesn't mean that it's only ESG and impact related, but I've always been driven, and especially in the financial services industry, I do believe in the societal need for what we do. We're investing for people's retirement, which is critically important and something I understood three months after I started in 1987. And so that's really motivated me throughout my career is how do we do this better for the end 
effect, and it's a pretty critical effect. And we have an enormous opportunity gap. We have a capital gap. And where I can help close that with either my money and investing or strategic advice or connecting dots, frankly, importantly, much of what I've done throughout my career has been connecting dots between business and policymakers, i.e. government, as well as philanthropic leaders and making sure that we're working together in our ecosystems to come together and solve for broader needs. And so that's that's been evident throughout our conversation here about 401ks and how to gain access. And so I do think that investing in people that dream big and partnering for speed and making sure that you're having a sustainable, scalable impact is all about what I intend to do. And how do you think private markets can really help solve all this? You mentioned connecting dots, bringing together public, private leaders, markets, et cetera. How do alts and private markets play a role in all of this? Of course, my investing runs the gamut. I've been doing this for a long time as an investor and and for my own investments. I do a lot in other areas as well and in secondaries and in public markets. But where I think personally I can have the biggest impact is at the building mode. It's what I'm driven the most by, connecting with people and building and really trying to connect dots to solve big problems. And so the startup community is ripe with that. And if I can help jumpstart that in different ways and the areas that I'm focused on is in financial services, healthcare and technology. I sit on a biotechnology company using engineered cells for medicine, which is super cool, backed by flagship and Arch Capital to very well-known VC firms in the biotech space. So just trying to do things that that can make a difference and have a scalable impact is something that I can make a difference in. But my investing will goes across all asset classes, but it's fun to certainly partner with entrepreneurs and other private investors to make something happen more quickly. That's pretty disruptive and just looking to change the industries that they operate within. And that's where I get very excited about our own industry because you're interviewing a lot of those leaders that I think are doing really important things. And if I can lend a voice in that and help change the industry more quickly, no matter the stage of growth or the life cycle, I absolutely want to help do that. It's a great segue into the final question that I always ask every guest, which is, what is your most interesting or favorite alternative investment? I'll give my most recent, which they will much appreciate. Sora Union is one of my most recent investments. They're making sure that opportunity meets talent. They're really all about making sure that people that are displaced, either by climate or war, are able to tap into a network of work so that they can work virtually from anywhere. And so I'm an investor. Made Invest is an investor in Sora Union, and I'm very excited about that. But they also created my website. So a woman from Nigeria, I think, is the one that helped me develop my logo for Made Invest Partners. And then I had someone from the Ukraine that was helping to work on the web content and design and color scheme and layout. And so I'm a very happy client. My website is up and running. I'm very happy you saw it. So hopefully you would agree. They did great work. It's things like that. People can't see on the podcast, but I'm smiling ear to ear. But it makes you feel good. I mean, you want it to be scalable and have a broader impact. You can feel good person by person, and I'm all about that. 
but I also want to have scalable impact and be a user of things that I invest in and really feel like it's making a difference for the people that work there. So that's a case in point. What's cool about that is not only does that seem like a fantastic investment opportunity, giving people access to creating income jobs, et cetera, but it also speaks to another feature of private markets, which is you can feel closer to the investments you're making than an impersonal investment in an ETF. And that's another power that private markets have, investing directly into a company or a fund and then using the company's product that the fund or yourself invested in. And that I think is important when it comes to private markets as well. And it has its place. So you never can let emotion and personal passion interfere with your financial health. But you're absolutely right. I mean, you can tap in. And if you can fuel that curiosity, if you can fuel that excitement, if you can see it at work, it's why you pay your allowance to kids in cash. You're just trying to stoke the enthusiasm, see how it works, see how it comes together and why capitalism can be quite good and a societal good especially when paired appropriately with lots of other parts of civil society. So it's very exciting. And distributed work is here to stay. And I'm excited to do it in this way for people in far-flung places that I've never met. But I'm very happy that my my website was to advance the cause. So It's a fantastic way to end the podcast. And I think the takeaway is that portfolio construction is important in every aspect of life, investing, but also outside of that in terms of balancing emotion, rational thinking, and everything. So th- thanks so much, Michelle, for coming on the Elko's Mainstream Podcast. Congrats on your incredible career and for sharing all your wisdom. Thank you, Michael. It was a pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode of Elko's Mainstream. I hope you enjoyed it. You can find more episodes of the podcast at any of your favorite podcast sites, and you can read more about alts at my Substack, altgoesmainstream.substack.com, and follow me on Twitter at at Michael Sidgmore and at GoesAlt. Thanks a lot, and have a great day. We're going-